Amen. Amen. You can have your seats. Amen. Thank you so much for that introduction. That was so much. That was so much. Uh, as Kelly said, my name is Anthony. I go by Ant. I have the privilege of serving as the pastor here. I see we've got some guests in the room. Can we make some noise for the guests that are with us today? Very glad to have you. Very glad that you're here. Very excited to get into the Word of God with you. We're going to continue in our sermon series, Ancestors, or Ghosts and Ancestors. So in case you haven't been with us, uh, when we started the sermon series in week one, uh, we talked about how when, when people pass on, oftentimes the generations after them are greatly affected by the way that they live their lives. So we talked about ghosts are those that are known to haunt those with their presence even after they pass on. And ancestors are those who leave a legacy of blessing and flourishing for those that come after them and those that are around them and live with them. So as we're working our way through uh, just the, the first five books of the Bible, we've been looking at different characters that we find, uh, some that are ancestors, some that are more so ghosts. Most are a combination of the two. Today we'll be talking about Moses. Today we'll be talking about Moses. Moses is the man that God used to free his people, people from slavery in Egypt. The descendants of Israel. So a couple of weeks ago, I talked about Jacob, whose name was turned to changed to, to Israel. And last week, we looked at the, the children in the story of Rachel and Leah. We looked at the children uh, that he had. Well, those 12 children that he had, they form, their, their descendants form uh, the Israelites or the, the nation of Israel. Now, they began to grow, they began to multiply, and they were in Egypt, but the Egyptians began to be afraid of the Israelites because of how much they were growing, because of how much power they ended up having because of their growth, and so they began to, and they felt threatened by the strength that they had in numbers, so the Egyptians enslaved God's people. Now, generally speaking, when that would take place, as was likely the case here with the Israelites in Egypt, when you were conquered by or enslaved by a kingdom or an empire, then you often had to worship their gods. They, they kind of forced you to participate in the practices of worship that they had amongst their gods. So God's people, whom he had called out to worship him and follow him and love him, were not only enslaved physically, but also spiritually as well. They weren't free to be able to worship God as God desired for them to do so. And Pharaoh himself oftentimes was worshiped as a god. He set himself up as a deity oftentimes in the minds of his people. So eventually God sends Moses to, to Pharaoh. You've probably heard it before. He told Pharaoh, let my people, let my people go, set my people free, ultimately so that they might go to, to be able to worship the one and true God. And after many miracles that God used Moses to, to work, Pharaoh does bend his knee to God and ultimately says, yes, you can go free. Afterwards, he changes his mind. He sends his army, his military, after them to bring them back. If you're familiar with the story, God uses Moses as he raises his, his rod, his staff, he uses Moses to part the Red Sea. God's people walk across on dry ground, and, and God is doing this to free them from this, this army, this military from Egypt, which is the dominant world power at the time. He uses this to free them, and then the Egyptian army follows the Israelites into the water, but before they can get through, the waters come crashing down, and God defeats this mighty Egyptian army and saves his people. And he uses his servant Moses to do this. He, he rids his people of this threat, this, this threat to their lives and this threat to their ability to worship him. 
And this occurrence in the Old Testament is referred to both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament as a picture of God's salvation of his people. More than any other occurrence in the Old Testament, this was referred to time and time again by biblical authors. And Moses, who God used to accomplish all of this, is an ancestor of ours. We have so much to learn from his life that God would like for us to see. Many biblical scholars even will say that Moses is the one that wrote the first five books of the Bible that we know as the Torah that we've been working our way through. Today, we're going to look at Moses' life before he did all of those things that he is mostly known for. Today, we're going to try to, to kind of pick apart and look into what does it look like for someone to be an ancestor? What does their life look like? Maybe, maybe before they are known, maybe before they have a legacy, maybe before they've passed down anything to others, what does their life look like? A simple way I can explain how God wants to use us as Christians if we are to be like the ancestors in the Bible before us is I like to use the words that Jesus used in what we know as the Lord's Prayer. And my point in bringing this up is to say for us to be ancestors, so to speak, this is what it would look like for us, especially ancestors in a biblical sense. Here's the way I, I like to think about it. And I use, again, Jesus' words from the Lord's Prayer. That God wants you to be a part of seeing his kingdom come, that seeing people turn away from sin and turn to Christ. And he wants, to be, he wants you to be a part of seeing his will being done on earth as it is in heaven. So making the earth look more and more like heaven every day by helping humanity to flourish, by living out the values and ideals of the kingdom of God here on the earth. This is what God has for us. And when I talk about living as, as ancestors to have a, that live a legacy or leave a legacy that continues on after us in a biblical sense, those are the two things I'm referring to. His kingdom come and his will being done on earth as it is in heaven and thus being used by God to see that take place. So let's go look at the early part of Moses' life. So just so we, so we don't spend too much time, too much of our time just reading, I'll, I'll summarize a few things. Uh, Moses was a descendant of Israel uh, in the time where they were being harshly oppressed by the Egyptians. Even though they were oppressed, they continued to grow and multiply. The Egyptians continued to be more and more afraid of them and feel threatened by them. So ultimately, Pharaoh sends out this decree that all of the, the boys that are born to the Israelites, have to be killed. Every single boy that is born for this time period has to be killed. Moses' mother couldn't find it within her to do so, so she puts him in a basket, puts him in the Nile River, and he is ultimately found by Pharaoh's daughter. The, the king of Egypt, Pharaoh, his daughter, finds Moses and raises him as her son. So he was raised with the Egyptians, even though he was an Israelite. So he, uh, he understood how the Egyptians did things, but he also had a connection to the Israelites as well, which I think is important, an important part of his story. To complicate things further, one day when he saw an Egyptian hitting an Israelite, Moses steps in to defend the Israelite and kills the Egyptian. Not only did he kill the Egyptian, he hid the body in the sand. So the next day, as he tries to break up a fight between two Israelites, they look at him like, wait, wait, who put you over us? And on top of that, are you going to kill us just like you killed that Egyptian? And when I read that in the context, it makes me wonder if the thought of the Israelites was, oh, since you were raised in the house of Pharaoh, you think you can tell us what to do? Even though you're one of us, since you were raised with the Egyptians, you believe that now you get authority over us and can tell us what we are to do? 
Then to make matters worse, Pharaoh hears that Moses killed this man and tries to kill Moses. So Moses, who kind of has this dual identity as an Israelite, but also one raised by the Egyptians and grew up in Egyptian culture, he seems to be despised by both sides. That the Israelites he is around, they're, they're talking to him like, oh, so you think you're in charge of us now? And Pharaoh, who is the king of the Egyptians, where Moses grew up now, has a desire to kill Moses. So Moses flees for his life. He runs to Midian. He gets married. He becomes a shepherd. And then comes this powerful paragraph in Exodus chapter 2. I'll start at verse 23. It says, during those many days, the king of Egypt died, that's Pharaoh, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. Translation, God has seen how Egypt has been treating his people. The ones that he promised to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, who we studied over the past month or so. He's not happy about how they've been treated, and he is about to do something about it. So God says this to Moses in Exodus chapter 3. I'll start at verse 7. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey. That's referring to a prosperous land. He said, I've seen the suffering. I've seen the oppression. I've seen the slavery. I'm about to free my people. This is what he's telling to Moses. I'm about to save them from the Egyptians. Verse 10. This is God still talking to Moses. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. So God tells Moses, the one who was the Israelite, who's raised in an Egyptian home, said, I'm going to use you to free my people. Verse 11, but Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? Point number one about ancestors. Ancestors often feel unqualified. Ancestors often feel unqualified. God, who am I that I should go say this to Pharaoh to set your people free? So this is the man that leads God's people to freedom just a handful of chapters later. He's the one that God uses for all these miracles just a handful of chapters later. This is the man that God uses to bring awful plagues onto the, onto the enemies of God and God's people. This is the man that God used to part the Red Sea. This man is, likely wrote the first five books of the Bible and the first recorded thing out of his mouth when God tells him what he's going to use him to do is me. God, who am I? We look at Moses as this great leader, but Moses looks at himself and he says, who am I, God? And then later in that conversation, God has told Moses what Moses is going to do. God tells Moses what he's going to do and what God is going to do and what he's going to say to the Egyptians and what he's going to say to the Israelites and how the Egyptians, and he even tells Moses how the Israelites and the Egyptians are going to respond when he says these things. And the first thing Moses says after God explains all of that is in the first verse of chapter 4. Chapter 4, verse 1, then Moses answered, but behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say, the Lord did not appear to you. No, God had already told him at this point how they were going to respond, that they were going to listen to him. Moses says, but behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say, the Lord did not appear to you. Maybe he's thinking, God, I'm an Israelite. 
but I grew up in the master's house. While my people were forced to work as slaves, they're not going to listen to me. Maybe he's thinking, God, I was raised by the Egyptians, but I killed an Egyptian, and the previous pharaoh found out about it and wanted to kill me. Maybe, this, maybe these Egyptians know about that. Maybe they're not going to listen to me because of that. So God tells Moses a few miracles that he's going to work through Moses to convince the Egyptians. So Moses responds by saying this, verse 10. But Moses said to the Lord, O my Lord, I am not eloquent. Either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. Moses says, God, I'm not good enough at talking. I wasn't good at talking in the past. I'm not good at talking now. I speak too slowly. They're not going to listen to me. Who am I? Last time I was there, I was despised by the Israelites and the Egyptians. Question for us Christians in the room. What's your reason for thinking God won't use you? What is your reasoning? What's your logic? What's your rationale for thinking God won't use you? For some of us, we think that our past sin disqualifies us from being used by God. Moses had reason to think that he had just killed a man. He hid the body. He was a fugitive running from Pharaoh. He was, the only reason he was in Midian is because he was running away from punishment for his sins. The fact that Moses murdered a man says something about Moses and his character. But the fact that Moses is the man that God chose to rescue his people from the dominant world power at that time says more about God than it does about Moses. We see a little bit about Moses in that he was willing in his anger and his defense of a fellow Israelite, he would kill somebody. That tells us something about Moses. But the fact that Moses is the one that God used, I believe says a lot more about God than it does about Moses. God using Moses in this powerful way makes a huge and powerful statement about God. Biblical authors are intentional about what made it into the scriptures and what did not. Nothing made it in the Bible on accident. The fact that Moses killed that man and it made it into the Bible story is to affect the way you understand the narrative of what is actually going on. The biblical authors are intentional about saying, no, this is a murderer. This is a man who was afraid. This is a man who ran away. This is a man who was unsure. This is a man who had excuses and reasons for why God would not use him. And he is the one that God used to rescue his people from the from slavery to Egypt. It shows us that God chose the murder and the fugitive to accomplish the salvation of his people that he had promised centuries before. And yet we can at times look at ourselves through the lens of our sin and think God wouldn't use someone like me. I'm not the kind of person God really uses. He wants to use other people, not me. Who am I that God would use me? And I'm talking to the, yeah, but you don't know what I've done, people, right? More importantly, God is talking to you saying, I know what you've done, and I'm still inviting you to be a part of what I'm doing to see my kingdom come and my will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Moses had reason to think that God wouldn't use him the way God wanted to use him because of his past experiences. God, last I checked, neither the Egyptians nor the Israelites like me. And you're calling me to go back to both of them? You're calling me to go back to the place that I ran from? The Egyptians wanted me dead. The Israelites saw me as someone who thought he was all high and mighty and above them. Moses didn't believe that anyone would listen to him. Moses also had reason to think that God wouldn't use him the way God wanted to use him because of his weaknesses. 
Verse 10 again, but Moses said to the Lord, oh, my Lord, I'm not eloquent either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. He's like, God, I'm not good at talking. I wasn't good at talking before you started talking to me through this burning bush. And since we've been talking, I ain't got no better. I'm still not good at this. I'm still not eloquent. I speak slowly. God, this weakness disqualifies me to be used by you in this way, is what Moses is saying. I am disqualified because I don't believe that I have the necessary skills, strengths, abilities, gifts, or whatever to be used by you in the way that you're telling me you want to use me. I'm not as good as other people that I've seen. Surely you should just call one of them, right? But God, I'm not gifted enough to be used by you. Verse 11, then the Lord said to him, who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Sir, who can't speak well enough, respectfully, who made your mouth? Respectfully, who gave you the ability to talk? Who enables people to hear? Who enables the hearing of those who will be hearing you when you go to them? What is God doing here? He's essentially saying to Moses, your weakness is not greater than your God. Moses is focusing in on his weaknesses. God is focusing Moses in on who God is and how powerful he is. Because, see, when you believe that your weakness keeps God from using you in ways that God desires to use you, you are elevating your weaknesses to a higher status and ability level than your God. You might as well be bowing down to and worshiping your weaknesses because you have been deceived by the enemy into arriving at the conclusion that your weaknesses are powerful enough to stop the hand of God. That your, your weaknesses possess the necessary amount of strength and power and might to stop the hand of God. You have determined that God is good and great and all that, but just not greater than your weaknesses, Right? He's just not bigger than your flaws. He's just not bigger than the things that you can bring up that you believe disqualify you. Jeremiah 32, 17 says this. Ah, Lord God, it is you who have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. The scriptures say that he made the heavens and the earth and that nothing is too hard for him. But we say, yeah, except for the fact that I don't know enough scripture. God's not powerful enough to use me because I don't know as much as I should or expected myself to know at this point. 1 Chronicles, 1 Chronicles 29, 12 says, You rule over all, in your hand are power and might, and in your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. The scriptures, say not, the scriptures not only say that power and might are in his hands, but he, but he is the one that is able to give power and strength to anyone. But we say, yeah, but I'm not good at communicating. So, God, you should probably send someone else to share the good news of Jesus with that person. Surely there's someone else that you would desire to use. Here's the crazy thing about all this. Not only are your weaknesses and your past and your sin not good excuses for why we think God won't use us. Not, not only are they bad excuses, but based on the pattern of Scripture, they are likely the reasons, those weaknesses, the past that you have, those things are likely the reasons that God will be glorified when he does use you. Not only, are there bad, not only are they bad excuses in light of the power of God, 
but they are probably actually tools in the hand of God to, to ensure that he is glorified for what he does. Think about it. What if the person that God used to free his people from Egypt was someone that was qualified for the job? What if, let's say, it was a general that was under Pharaoh, that knew everything about Pharaoh's army and, and the systems and the processes that he had in place, and he had a lot of experience, a lot of military experience leading people. What if he, he, he just kind of turned against Pharaoh, rallied the people against Pharaoh, used that and his influence to free God's people from slavery in Egypt? What would people have said? It was because of him. If the person he used was somebody that you would look at and say, this person is qualified for the task, qualified for the job, then we would understand the narrative completely differently. We would say, yeah, well, the reason they were free because this person understood enough about Pharaoh and the army. He had a lot of military background, so he, he overthrew the king that was over him, and that's how he did it. That's not how God wanted the story to go. God wanted to use someone that seemed highly unlikely to be able to do this. So that the only logical and reasonable conclusion is that God himself did it. That God, was, that God who was high and mighty did this and was with them. That's how God wanted it to be. And this is the case a number of times in Scripture. He does this with King David as well, before David becomes king even. He does this with him as well. I know we know that David defeated Goliath and became a mighty king, but David was so unsuspected of greatness that when Samuel who's being led by God to go to, to go to, to David's home, David's father, Jesse, brings out his sons as the ones that God might be, might, might be looking to to become the king over his people. He doesn't even bring David in. He brings all of David's brothers. He doesn't even bring David in. Samuel's like, hey, none of these guys are going to be king. Do you have any more children? Do you have any more sons? We're not fighting it here. And Jesse was like, well, David's out there, but I don't, you know, you want me to bring David in here? Brings David in, and Samuel, inspired by God, says, this is the one that's going to be the next king, the least expected, the one you wouldn't believe that God would use in that way. Happens a number of times in Scripture, and yet David was the one that went and killed Goliath. David was the one that became king and led God's people to great victory and prosperity over their enemies that attacked them. Many commentators would say that David accomplished more as far as victory over the enemies to God and his people than any other king that reigned over God's people. And Moses, the one with no military leadership experience, was the one that he used to free his people from slavery. So that what Daniel chapter 9 verse 15 says could be seen by all where he says, And now, O Lord our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand, have made a name for yourself. That God received glory for the work that was done when he freed his people from Egypt. And I want to proclaim to you today, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9 says this. This is the Apostle Paul writing. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in what? Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me, that there is an experience of the power of God that we get to enjoy, that we get to see, that we get to savor, savor when he uses us in places of weakness, in times that we feel weak, in times that we are weak, in areas where we're not as strong as we desire to be or as we expect it to be. When God works in those areas, we can experience with God's power that we would miss if all we ever did was operate in areas of strength. We get an experience with God 
The scripture says, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. That I get to enjoy his power in a different way. Weakness creates the opportunity to enjoy God and experience God in this way. It's not a disqualifier for being used by God. I'd say it sets the table for us to experience God's power in a different way. Our weaknesses reveal the perfection and completeness of God's power. We see and experience and get to marvel at God's power even more when he uses us in spite of our weaknesses. I hope you know and I hope you enjoy the fact that God wants to use you in your job this week. I hope you know and enjoy the fact that God wants to use you around your family, around your friends, or potentially in the community this week. I hope you know and enjoy the fact that God wants to use you in whatever ministry team you might be a part of at this church or any ministry that you're a part of. I hope you know and enjoy the fact that God wants to use you in your life group as we seek to encourage each other in the word of God. I hope you know and enjoy that this week, whatever space God has you in, he wants to use you to see his kingdom come and his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In spite of your weaknesses, in spite of your past. So let that coworker or classmate that's been going through a hard time, let them know that you're going to be praying for them. And that you love to be able to share with them where you find strength and comfort in difficult times. So invite that person that you know that you've been building a relationship with to church or to life group or if you're part of another ministry. I know we've got members of, of the Young Life ministry that are here with us as well. Invite this person to whatever function that, that you might be having, knowing that God wants to use you. So ask God to show you who he might want you to encourage this week and send them a scripture to encourage them. But here's my question. If God wants to use us and we aren't to rely on our past or solely on our strengths, what then should we rely on? Point number two, ancestors need to rely on God's presence. Ancestors need to rely on God's presence. Exodus chapter 3, verse 11. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? Moses focuses on himself, which causes him to see his own limitations and breeds excuses in him for why God can't use him. But God leads Moses to focus on God and God's presence with him. Look at what God says, verse 12. He said, but I will be with you. And this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Notice, God doesn't even answer Moses' question. You ever got a question that's a waste of time? God doesn't even respond to the question. Moses says, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? God says, but I will be with you. God doesn't answer Moses' question because, to be honest, it's not relevant to the conversation. Following Moses up on who he is might reinforce the thought that who he is matters when it comes to whether or not God's going to use him. God doesn't do that. God doesn't do that. Moses says, God, who am I? God says, I will be with you. Moses says, I am not blank enough. And God is, God is strengthening him, encouraging him to stop focusing on himself and how much he's not enough because God will be with him. I said earlier, ancestors often feel unqualified. And that in and of itself isn't wrong. 
Because outside of the presence and power of God, we are unqualified for what God calls us for. It's not wrong to recognize our limitations and our weaknesses in and of ourselves. It is wrong when we don't recognize the one who is with us through it all. Exodus chapter 4, verse 10. But Moses said to the Lord, O my Lord, I am not eloquent either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. Then the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now, therefore, go and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. He said, I know, but I'm going to be with you the whole way through. And this isn't just the case for Moses. If you go to the end of the Torah, the end of the book of Deuteronomy, Moses dies and Joshua begins in the next book of the Bible to lead God's people into the promised land. And as God is charging Joshua to lead God's people, this is what he says, Joshua 1 verse 9. Have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous? Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed. See, if that was all God said, to me, that's a difficult thing. You tell somebody, I'm afraid. Well, don't be afraid. Okay, that actually doesn't help. You actually didn't do anything to help me. I'm afraid. Stop being scared. Okay. If I was able to do that on my own, don't you think I would have already done that? Have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. He gives them a rock to stand on. He doesn't just come with some type of cliche, believe in yourself, you can do it. He doesn't just come with with some type of advice to try to motivate him. He gives them a rock to stand on. He says, I am going to be with you. Thus, you can be courageous. Thus, you don't have to be afraid. You don't have to be frightened. You don't have to be dismayed. God is calling calling Joshua to lead God's people in battle against enemies that desire to kill them and wipe them off the planet. A few chapters later, three kingdoms with more military experience than God's people have are going to form an alliance against Joshua and against God's people. And God tells them to find courage and strength, not in Joshua's own ability or in the size or strength of his army, but in the fact that God is with them. When he's telling them to be bold and courageous, he's not telling them to be bold and courageous enough to have a conversation. He's telling them to be bold and courageous enough to trust me with your life as you go to battle with these people that desire to kill you because I'm with you. That is, the, that is the level of strength that God desires for his people to find in the fact that he is with us, that we would trust him with our lives because we know that he is with us. Matthew 28, 18 through 20, Jesus is commissioning his disciples. Verse 18 says, And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And here's the point. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. When he sends his disciples out to share the gospel of the kingdom of God with the lost and make disciples and leave a legacy that will continue on centuries upon centuries after them on this earth and will ring out for eternity in the next life. He gives them the same comfort that he gave to Moses. He gives the same comfort that he gave to Joshua and many others in the Bible over and over again in the scriptures to strengthen and encourage the people of God to walk faithfully in the purpose that God has called us to. He encourages his people with his presence. Over and over again, we see it in the Bible. And my prayer for you is that over and over again, you remember in your heart that God is with you no matter what he is calling you to. God is with you. I hope you know that not only does God want to use you in whatever spaces he puts you in, 
but he's also with you on your job this week. He's also with you around your family this week. He's also with you around your friends and in the community this week. He's also with you in whatever ministry area or ministry team you find yourself to be a part of. He's with you when you're around your life group and encouraging each other in the word of God to continue walking in faith. He is with you this week in whatever space he puts you in. He's with you when you let that coworker or classmate know that's going through the hard time that you're praying for them. He's with you when you let them know that you would love to be able to share with them where you find hope and strength in difficult times. He's with you when you invite that person that you built that relationship with to church or to life group or whatever ministry that you're a part of. He's with you when you are encouraging someone through the word of God this week. You are doing none of these things alone. He promised you. He said, I'll be with you always, always, that there will never be a moment. There will never be a time. There will never be a task. There will never be a thing that God is calling you to do when he is not with you. That's the comfort that he wants you to have. He wants you to remember that every day of your life, if you're a follower of Christ, you're never alone. There is nothing that you are doing in the name of Jesus Christ in an intent to follow him that you're actually doing alone. He wants you to know that today. He wants you to know that tomorrow and next week and next year and every day for the rest of your life. He is with you. God doesn't just challenge us with commands to serve him. He also comforts us with his presence as we're serving him. And if his presence was enough for Moses as he led God's people out of slavery in Egypt, and if his presence was enough for Joshua as he defeated those who wanted to do harm for God's pe- to God's people, then it's enough for you and me as we represent Christ as his ambassadors and as his witnesses day in and day out, moment by moment. If you have placed your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation from sin, God's spirit dwells in you and is with you at all times, strengthening you, enabling you to live out whatever God has called you to. Some of you, there's conversations that God is calling you to have and you ain't had them yet. And God wants you to know his spirit is with you to strengthen you in whatever conversation you need to have. It might be with somebody who doesn't know Jesus. It might be with somebody who does know Jesus. He's calling you to it. You know he's calling you to it. His spirit is with you. He's telling you, no, I am giving you the strength. I'm with you in this. You're not in this alone. Step out in faith and trust him. A a mature Christian response to the fact that God is always with us is to, in times of fear, in times when we don't sense a courage inside of us, to do whatever God is calling us to do, when we sense a reluctance inside of us. A mature Christian response is to go to the Lord in prayer. God, comfort me with your presence. Remind me of the strength that I have in you. Fill me with your spirit. Give me me the boldness that I need. Give me the strength that I need. Give me the grace, the love. Give me everything that I need and keep me reminded, keep it at the forefront of my mind and in the depths of my heart that you are with me through it all. That is a mature response to the hesitancy that we might feel to step into whatever God is calling us to. You're not alone in that conversation. Maybe you think, maybe you think it's easy for somebody like me to say who has a gift in communication or teaching or whatever. One thing that I thought thought would be good to share is, uh, I think I've shared this a couple times before. When I, was, when I was in high school, I had tremendous, tremendous social anxiety. Uh, I, I had a fear of speaking in front of people. But even beyond that, I had, a, I had a fear of sitting in the middle of a classroom where people would see me. 
Like literally my senior year in high school, I, I was voted second for the class superlatives for most quiet in my, in, in my graduating class in high school. I think it was like 160 people in the high school, in, the, in my graduating class. And my point in telling you that is, for me, becoming a preacher and a teacher of God's word began before I knew anything about have, that I had a gift in doing it. It was a, I knew it was something God was calling me to. I felt a, a desire and a passion to do it. And it was stepping out in faith to do so. See, and, and, here, and here's the thing. Even now, knowing that it is something God has gifted me in, this is important for, for those of us who would see ourselves as gifted. Even if you're the most gifted person at whatever it is, you still have to rely on the power and presence of God. And here's why. Being extremely gifted in something will cause people to say, man, that was great. It's only the presence and power of God that causes people to turn away from sin and turn to God. It's only the presence and power of God that will strengthen and fortify believers, no matter how gifted you might be at whatever it is. So even if you, if you view yourself as someone who's operating in a place of strength, we still need to be relying on the presence and the power of God. That's one thing that thanks to my upbringing in the church, that I always remembered that I had. In times when I feel gifted, in times when I don't. In times when I feel strong, in times when I feel weak. One of the things that I'm blessed to have retained from my childhood, being brought up to know the Lord, is that God is always with me. One of the biggest blessings to me, especially when I first began preaching, was when I began visualizing myself. It's when I'm walking up to the pulpit, I'm not walking up there alone. As I'm standing before the people of God, I'm not standing up here alone and by myself. And I've been able to, to find a comfort, a sweetness to my relationship with Christ just in knowing that he is with me. And I believe that's what God desires for you as well, that you will find a comfort, a sweetness, a new understanding of his love and his presence and his nearness to you through knowing that he said he will be with you always, even to the ends of the age. So let's take our eyes off of ourselves and put them, let's take our eyes off of ourselves, off of our weaknesses and off of our strengths for a moment. And let us remember his power and his presence, knowing that he can use, of, use us based off of who he is and not based off of who we are. 